One of the traditions our family had for several years, in addition to the various traditions around Christmas and other holidays, has been the celebration of Passover. The Passover holiday is when the Jewish people celebrate their miraculous deliverance out of the bondage of Egypt. To release the Jewish people from slavery, the death angel came through Egypt and killed the firstborn in every household. The only thing that could be done to stop this was to kill an unblemished lamb and apply its blood to the doorposts and the lintel of the house. In Exodus 12, 13, God said, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and thus the name of the Jewish holiday, Passover. We started celebrating Passover years ago, not because we have to do so, but because we wanted to do so. We are not Jewish, and we are not under the law of Moses, but we decided to start celebrating Passover because we wanted a regular reminder of what Jesus did on the last night before his death. Jesus grew up celebrating Passover, and he continued that practice throughout his entire life. And I can say with absolute confidence that Jesus, as a devout Jew, never, ever missed a Passover celebration his entire life. In fact, in Luke twenty-two fifteen, he said to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That was very important to Jesus. It was very significant for him. This morning, we come to Mark's description of that event in chapter 14 of his gospel. So turn with me, please, to Mark 14, if you are not already there. And please follow along as I read verses 12 through 26. Mark chapter 14. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out, and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. 
Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Without getting into all the various views about the chronology of our Lord's last week, I believe the evidence points to the view that this that we just read is Thursday night. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. Five days earlier on Saturday, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus for his burial by pouring on his head and feet a flask of very costly fragrant oil. Mark tells us about that in verses 3 through 9 of this chapter. The next day was Sunday, and that day is commonly known as Palm Sunday because many believe it was the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt in direct fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. Now the reason why I say it the way I did is because the chronology of the final days before our Lord's death is not easy to nail down with exact precision. It is possible that the triumphal entry was on Monday, but I won't get into all the issues and we'll stick with Sunday being the triumphal entry. That is the traditional view. It has some merit, but so does Monday. So the triumphal entry happens on Sunday. The next day, which would have been Monday, Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it from all of its crass commercialism, just as he had done at the beginning of his ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2. Matthew 21, 14 tells us, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. That resulted in some young boys beginning to shout out praises to Jesus by saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. <clears throat> These were probably 12-year-old boys who would have been there in Jerusalem at the temple to celebrate their bar mitzvah. Their praise of Jesus as the Messiah and the fact that he accepted that praise infuriated the Jewish leaders. The next morning on Tuesday, Jesus headed back to the temple again and on the way he saw a fruitless fig tree. He cursed the fig tree as an illustration of what would happen to the nation of Israel, especially the leaders, because they were also fruitless and barren. They had the look, they had the appearance. Outwardly they looked fine, but inwardly they were fruitless and barren. While Jesus was ministering at the temple, the many different religious groups began to blitz him with questions in an attempt to trap him and ensnare him. These trick questions were hurled at him by the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees tried yet again. Jesus withstood all these questions, which were really accusations. Coming off all those confrontations, which may have taken place Tuesday and Wednesday of the final week, Jesus unleashed the strongest rebuke of his ministry. He uttered seven woes, seven pronouncements of judgment against the religious leaders of Israel. Each pronouncement is a blistering statement. That is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 23. 
The first verse of Mark 13 says, Then as he went out of the temple, Jesus left the temple, and when he did, the glory of God went with him. He left the temple for the last time. From there he went to the Mount of Olives, which is right across the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. And as he was seated on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him about his coming and the end of the age. That prompted his Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel. The opening verses of this 14th chapter tell us that this was a couple days before Passover. Because chapter 14, verse 1 says, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by deception and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Passover was on Friday. So that would mean that this was on Wednesday. The next day... Thursday would be our Lord's last day before his crucifixion. So that brings us to Thursday. And this was the night when Jesus would celebrate Passover with his disciples. This raises a perplexing question for students of the Bible when it comes to the issue of the chronological comparisons between the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John's gospel. The Synoptic Gospels indicate that Jesus ate Passover on Thursday evening. But John, in 1828 of his Gospel, indicates that the Jewish leaders were going to eat Passover on Friday evening. In John 19.14, John calls that Friday the day of preparation for the Passover. In other words, on the Friday that Jesus was crucified... The Jews were preparing to eat the Passover that evening. So that raises the question. Why did Jesus and his disciples eat Passover on Thursday evening? The answer is found in the difference between the northern Jews of Galilee and the southern Jews of Judea. For reasons related to the way each group reckoned time, the Galilean Jews celebrated Passover on Thursday evening, and the Judean Jews celebrated Passover on Friday evening. So in the sovereignty of God, Jesus was able to participate in Passover on Thursday evening and then be crucified on Friday, which was the day when the Passover lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem. God orchestrated all the events to make sure that his son was sacrificed on the same day the Passover lambs were sacrificed. Jesus was crucified on Passover day. That was Friday. And the story we are looking at in our text this morning is Thursday evening. Mark is building up to the climax of his gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That will be presented in chapters 15 and 16. Here in this 14th chapter... Mark tells us about all the events that led up to those culminating events. He tells us about the plot of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. He tells us about the anointing by Mary for burial. 
He tells us about the agreement of Judas to betray Jesus. He tells about the final Passover with the disciples. He tells about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells about his arrest in the Garden. And then he tells about the initial trial of Jesus. All of these events lead up to the pinnacle of Mark's Gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapters 15 and 16. So as we work our way through this 14th chapter, Mark is leading us on a journey to the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. One of the events that led to that culmination is the one here in verses 12 through 26, which record our Lord's final Passover. Notice how Mark describes it beginning in verse 12. He says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? You see, for them it was, it was just an assumption. They knew they were going to eat it. It's just, where are we going to do this, Lord? We're not at home. We're not up in Galilee where all the disciples were from. We're in Jerusalem. So where are we going to do this? And remember, this is Thursday. Since Jesus and his disciples were Galilean Jews, they would celebrate Passover on Thursday evening. That means that they had to prepare everything during the day on Thursday. So the disciples, and according to Luke 22:8, this was specifically Peter and John, they asked Jesus where he was planning for them to eat Passover. We find out as the story unfolds that Jesus had already arranged everything in advance. In verse 13, he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. We are told by Mark and by Luke that Jesus informed Peter and John that they would be able to recognize this man they were to meet because he would be carrying a pitcher of water. That was a task normally reserved for women, which means that this man would stand out in this crowd, in a crowd. All of these details point to the conclusion that Jesus had made prior arrangements, and they also de these details also demonstrate the fact that Jesus was in sovereign control of all the events leading to his death. I mean, think about how amazing this detail is. What are the odds, if it were merely chance, of Peter and John entering the city of Jerusalem and bumping into a man carrying a pitcher of water? That wasn't chance. It was Jesus sovereignly orchestrating events to accomplish his purposes. So verse 14 tells us that Jesus continued his instructions by saying, Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So they met the man, went to his house, got things ready for the Passover. This would involve bringing in some matzah or unleavened bread, some bitter herbs, arranging things to make sure that there would be enough lamb for 13 men. 
They also needed sufficient wine and water to mix with the wine. They also used water for several ceremonial hand washings throughout the evening. In addition, they would need to make sure that there were enough small tables and enough room for all of them to be able to partake of the meal. So these were the kinds of things they did on that Thursday to prepare for Passover. Verse 17 tells us, In the evening he came with the twelve. Notice that Mark tells us that Jesus came with the twelve. The reason why I call attention to this point is because I've seen a couple movies on the life of Jesus in which the movies show Mary Magdalene in the upper room on this final night. Whatever the motives are for putting her in the story here, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus was with the twelve disciples on this occasion. As I've stated many times in the past, Jesus did not sit with his disciples in large chairs behind a long oak table so someone could paint their portrait. That's not the way they celebrated Passover. Instead, they would recline on the floor beside short tables that were about 12 to 18 inches tall. They would recline on one arm or one elbow, and then they would use the other arm to take their food and feed themselves. So instead of envisioning 13 men behind an oak table to have their pictures taken, you need to see men reclining on pillows on the floor on the outside of tables set up in a block U formation. Because they had to recline in close proximity to each other, sometimes their heads would be close to another person's head or close to another person's chest. That helps us understand what took place in the conversations on this night. In verse 18, Jesus informs them of something that was shocking. Mark says, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Because we know the story, we can easily read that verse in a ho-hum sort of manner. We know this was Judas, and we know he wasn't a real Christian, and we know that God used this to carry out his eternal plan for the crucifixion of his son, and we know that Jesus would rise from the dead, but the disciples didn't know any of that at this point. None of it. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were convinced that he was about to come forward in glory to establish the promised kingdom. They also knew that he had enemies who wanted to kill him. But they were also convinced that everyone in their group was a committed follower of Jesus. They believed that everyone in their group loved Jesus and would be true to him and faithful to him and would stand up for him to the very end. Therefore, this announcement hit like a nuclear bomb. The disciples could not comprehend that one of them would actually have the audacity and the audaciousness and the hard-heartedness and the callousness to turn Jesus over to his enemies. Yet that is exactly what Jesus announced was going to happen. Verse 19 says, They began to be sorrowful. And to say to him one by one, is it I? 
And another said, is it I? You see, they had no reason to suspect Judas. They had more reason to doubt themselves than they had to believe that this was Judas. Now, it is commendable that when Jesus made this announcement, each man began to wonder if he would be the one to carry out such a dastardly deed. In addition to sorrow, this announcement also seems to have struck struck them with an element of fear about their own capacity to give in to such a despicable choice. Maybe they wondered if they would be arrested or captured and maybe forced by torture to turn on Jesus. Maybe they wondered if they would break under the pressure. They were exceedingly distressed by this announcement, but none of them thought it was Judas. Verse 20, he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. It's almost as if Jesus had to repeat this because they just couldn't comprehend it. He states again, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. We are told in John's Gospel that Jesus specifically spoke those words to John in response to a question that Peter motioned for John to ask of Jesus. Now picture the scene in your mind. You've got a sort of a block U-shaped setup of tables, disciples eating around all of them. The food is in the middle there. Peter is on one side over here. Jesus is on the other side, and John is seated next to him. and and, And surprisingly, on the other side of Jesus is Judas, So Jesus is there. John's on one side of him. Judas is on the other. Peter's across the room. John wanted to be very close to Jesus, so he reclined in such a way that his head was right near the chest of Jesus. Peter was across the room from Jesus and John. So Peter motioned for John to whisper to Jesus to find out about whom Jesus was talking, and then Jesus responded with these words that we just read. I take it that none of the other disciples heard Jesus make this comment. The reason why I say that is because according to John's gospel, when Jesus dismissed Judas to carry out the betrayal, none of the disciples even knew why Jesus dismissed him. They didn't know why Jesus let him go or told him to go. In fact, they assumed that Jesus had dismissed Judas to go give something to the poor at Passover since Judas was the treasurer of the group. So it's highly doubtful that the others heard Jesus make this statement here in verse 20, or they heard it, but it just didn't register with them. But it is likely that they heard Jesus say what he said in this next verse. Verse 21, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. It is stunning how Jesus did not hesitate to affirm the sovereignty of God and the volitional responsibility of man in the exact same statement. That's what he does here. It was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed. And Judas was the one who fulfilled those prophecies. 
However, God didn't force Judas. God didn't make Judas do it. Judas had a choice. That's a divine tension that our minds cannot totally comprehend. But even though we can't comprehend how this fits, Jesus did not hesitate to affirm the sovereignty of God and the volitional responsibility of man in the exact same statement. God prophesied that his son would be betrayed. That's sovereignty. Judas chose to betray Jesus. That's human volition or choice. Therefore, since there is no contradiction, even though there is in our minds, Jesus could say it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Because Judas chose of his own volition to reject Jesus and betray Jesus, it would have been better if he had not been born. When you hear Jesus make a statement like that, it ought to make you shudder. Because Judas chose to refuse to surrender his heart and will to Jesus, it would have been better for Judas if he had not been born because he will spend eternity in hell. And the same thing is true of everyone who makes that same choice to reject Jesus and refuses to surrender to him. If you die in that condition, it would have been better for you if you had not been born. But you can't blame that on God. You have a choice. No one is forcing you to reject Jesus. No one is making you reject Jesus. That's a choice for which you and you alone are responsible. That's what Jesus said about Judas on this occasion. But it's possible that Judas wondered if Jesus knew he was the one. So according to Matthew's account, and Mark doesn't record this, but according to Matthew's account, Judas asked Jesus, Rabbi, is it I? We know from John's gospel that Judas was reclining right next to Jesus. John on one side, Judas on the other side. Thus, it is very likely that Judas asked Jesus that question when the other disciples were distracted or weren't listening or were talking among themselves. Judas could have easily leaned over and asked this question of Jesus without anyone else hearing it, which would explain why the disciples still didn't know it was Judas when Jesus dismissed him. But even though they didn't know, from this point on, Judas knew that Jesus was aware of what he planned to do. When he leaned over to Jesus and said, Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus affirmed, yeah, I know it's you. Judas knew that Jesus had him pegged at that point. I think it's significant, and this comes from Matthew's gospel. He gives a little longer account of this. I think it's significant that Judas did not refer to Jesus as Lord as the other disciples had done. When the other disciples asked Jesus about, when Jesus made the announcement, they all said, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? But Judas didn't say that. He said, Rabbi, is it I? Jesus wasn't his Lord, which is why he really wasn't a Christian. Now, we don't know when Jesus dismissed Judas to carry out this heinous act. Matthew and Mark place Jesus' warning about the betrayer prior 
to him instituting the Lord's Supper, which may imply Judas left first that Judas left and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. However, Luke places it afterwards, which may imply Judas stayed for the institution of the Lord's Supper, as described in the following verses. Only John 13.30 actually records the departure of Judas, but John says nothing about the Lord's Supper. So it's difficult to tell by comparison of the four Gospels whether Judas left before or after the institution of the Lord's Supper. Whatever the case... Jesus went on to establish communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, which is so very meaningful to us today. In verse 22, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It's obvious that Jesus is using symbolic language when he says, This is my body. Because his actual body was right there with the disciples, and it had not been broken yet. So when he says, this is my body which is broken, he's not talking about his actual body. It wasn't broken yet. He's talking, he's using symbolism by breaking the bread. It's important to make this point because some groups, as you know, teach that the bread of the Lord's Supper is not symbolic. They teach that it is the actual, literal body of our Lord that we are eating, which would be cannibalism. No, Jesus is using metaphorical language when he speaks these words. The bread that he broke symbolizes his body, which the very next day was broken for your sin and mine. And indeed, it was broken. The prophet Isaiah predicted that his body would be so broken that he would barely even look like a man hanging on the cross. The Gospels tell us of the punches and the slaps he took before he was even crucified, and he was also scourged. Scourging was so damaging to the human body that sometimes it would kill the person being scourged. It was so severe that Roman custom was that a man could either be scourged or crucified, but not both. Jesus went through both. He was crucified, but first he was scourged. A scourge was a leather whip that had pieces of bone or metal embedded in the strips of leather. It was said that 40 lashes could sometimes cut a man in half. That's what was done to the body of our Lord. He was scourged, then crucified. Crucifixion was so severe that no Roman citizen could be subjected to its cruelty. Tacitus said it was a despicable death. The Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero said, quote, It was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments, the most cruel and horrifying death, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it, end quote. We know from history that crucifixion had actually originated with the Persians. But the Romans had adopted it and then had perfected it as their primary form of capital punishment. The torture of crucifixion was so severe that our English word excruciating comes from the Latin word which means out of the cross. The physical abuse Jesus suffered to his body is beyond comprehension. That's what he's referring to here in verse 22 when he 
breaks this piece of unleavened bread, and if you've ever had matzah bread, unleavened bread, you know it snaps, it's brittle, it just breaks. And that's what he's referring to when he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. The Passover celebration looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. The Lord's Supper looks back in remembrance at his sacrificial death. It is here on this unique occasion, celebrating Passover, that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance of our worship. This is where it comes from. This is why we do what we do in communion, Lord's table, Lord's Supper. Verse 23 says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Back in Jesus' day, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he and his father would go to the woman's house and they would sit together with the young woman and her father to negotiate the bride price. Now, I know immediately that sounds strange to you. You're going to buy your wife? It's just a cultural thing. I know it sounds strange, but as I've traveled around the world and talked with others, you need to understand they think our culture is strange. You know, I, had, I helped a friend of mine in Africa buy his bride. I gave him some money because he couldn't afford her so that he could buy his bride. You say, well, that's strange. Well, look, think about the way they look at us. They say, what? As a dad, you give your daughter away? Don't you care about her? You just give her away? Come on, what's that? So it's just cultural. You just need to get past the cultural stuff and understand this is the way it worked. When a man wanted to marry a woman, he and his father would go to the woman's house. They would sit together with the young woman and her father to negotiate the bride price. The young woman's father would ask for a great deal of money or other valuables because his daughter was precious to him. In fact, the price paid for a new bride would probably rival the price we would pay for a new home. After the negotiations, the young man's father would pour a cup of wine and give it to his son. His son would take the cup and hold it out to the young woman, and he would say to her, This cup I offer you. That was his way of saying, I love you and I offer you my life. The young woman was then at the crossroads of a decision. She could say, no, I don't want you and your life. Or she could take the cup and lift it to her mouth to drink. By drinking from the cup, she was saying, I accept your life and I give you my life. Now, beloved, think about that in relation to what we see going on here in this story. Jesus is eating Passover with his disciples. The Passover celebration involves drinking four different cups of wine at various points throughout the celebration. The third cup, the cup of redemption or the cup of salvation, sometimes called the cup of blessing, is given near the end of the celebration. It's after supper. So the meal is over. They've eaten lamb and, un and bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The meal is over. And then they have two more cups as a part of the Passover celebration. This is the third cup. There are four total. The cup is lifted, and the host of the Passover says a brief prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then he gives it to the people to drink. But when Jesus came to this point 
in the Passover celebration, he took the cup of salvation, the cup of blessing, and instead of saying, blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine, instead of saying that, which is what the disciples would have expected him to say, they knew the Passover ceremony, they knew the liturgy, they knew how it went, but instead of saying that, Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant. Again, the language is symbolic. But the interesting thing about this incident is that when Jesus lifted up this cup, he didn't say the normal blessing. He broke from the norm. He broke from the liturgy. Instead, he, he, he says, in essence, I love you. Will you be my spiritual bride? Will you take my life? And beloved, there's a sense in which that takes place every time you and I celebrate the Lord's table. Jesus is saying, as we remember his broken body and his shed blood, Jesus, by that ceremony, is saying, I love you. Will you be my spiritual bride? Will you take my life? And as we partake, in essence, we're saying, yes, I take your life and I give you mine. That's the symbolism. That's the meaning. That's the significance. And Jesus instituted that right here on the night before his death. And then in verse 25, then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Now, this would be the fourth cup. He took it. This is the way they would conclude Passover. And he had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. They drank from it. But in a minute, he will say, for the fourth cup, he won't partake of it. The third one, he did. Fourth one, he didn't. But he says in verse 25, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new in the kingdom of God. So when they came to that third cup, the cup of salvation, the cup of redemption, Jesus instituted the, the Lord, here he continued instituting the Lord's Supper, the cup portion of it. But then afterwards at the fourth cup, he gave it to them to drink, but he wouldn't drink it. He says, I won't do so until... He does so in the future millennial kingdom. Then we'll all do so together in a marvelous celebration. We will drink the cup of consummation. Verse 26 tells us as the story closes, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was the customary way for them to conclude Passover. At the end, all Jewish families sing a hymn. They sing a song. So Jesus in accordance with the typical pattern, sings a song with his disciples. His final Passover with his men has concluded. When it says they sang a hymn or a song, depending on your translation, it was probably Psalm 118. We don't know that for sure, but very likely Psalm 118, and they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Events are rapidly moving toward the cross where Jesus would die to purchase our salvation, where Jesus would die as the perfect Passover lamb. Have you received that salvation? Please hear this. Just because Jesus died to purchase it doesn't mean it's automatically yours. Please hear that. Just because Jesus died to purchase it doesn't mean it's automatically yours. You have to receive it. You have to take it. Let's bow as we close this morning. 
on this final night before our Lord's death, he celebrated Passover with his disciples, and in the process, he instituted something that is so meaningful to us to this very day. We call it the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, because he wanted to give us a memorial by which we would remember the price that was paid for our deliverance, just as the Jewish people would partake of lamb to remember the lamb that was slaughtered and its blood put on the doorpost and lintel to provide for their deliverance. So deliverance has been paid for. It's been provided. I ask you once again, have you received it? Just as at the Passover, only those who applied the blood to the doorpost and lintel were spared. Not everyone who ate lamb, only those who applied the blood. And it's the same today. Only those who apply the blood of the cross of Christ experience deliverance. And the blood is applied by faith. The New Testament says that over and over and over again. It's by grace through faith. Have you placed faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him for deliverance? Father, as we meditate on our Lord's final night, doing something that was so meaningful to him, something so meaningful as a Jewish man celebrating Passover and using that occasion to institute the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, it sort of takes us right back there as we try to envision what happened and how it unfolded. But we don't want to merely look at the history and fail to see the application to our own lives. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on this occasion to remind us of the price he paid to purchase redemption. And Father, I pray for anyone here among us who needs to apply that, just as the ancient Jews had to apply the blood to their doorpost and lintel. Pray for anyone here who needs to apply the blood of Christ to their own hearts by faith. May they turn to Jesus Christ. May they receive him and yield to him. We pray in his precious name. Amen.